Thank you, Dr. Schwartz, and all of you who came today. It's not a very pleasant day. Uh, but today I want to tell you the story of the greatest hero I have known in my life, called Andrew Itovicius in the Lithuanian, uh, in the Lithuania, which was the country of his parents, and an American citizen because he was born in this country to which his parents fled during World War II. He Americanized his name as Iva. Like all Lithuanians, he was born, baptized, and brought up as a Catholic. Lithuania was the last country in Europe to be converted to Catholic Christianity in the 14th century. Its pagan king, Jagiello, married the Holy Catholic Queen of Poland, St. Edwiga, who converted him. So both nations became Catholic and ever since have held fast to the faith. That was Andy Ivas' glorious heritage upon which his American citizenship was grafted. Lithuania lies in the northern forests of Europe, washed on the west by the cold waters of the Baltic Sea. Its coastlands produce valuable amber, and hence are known as the Amber Coast. Its capital is the small city of Vilnius. After the First World War, in the breakup of the Tsarist Empire, Lithuania became briefly an independent state. It remained such until it was swallowed up by Stalin's Russia in 1940. At the same time, Stalin also seized the two other Baltic states, north of Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. Their presidents were sent to the slave camps in Siberia, identified only by numbers. Thirty-seven years later, a messenger was smuggled out of the Soviet Union from the former president of Estonia, Konstantin Petz. It will, quote, it will soon, I will soon be 80 years old. There are very few, few days of life left for me. Having been born free, I would also like to die in freedom, end quote. So he died in exile and alone, forgotten by the free world he had once belonged to. Andy Ivor's grandfather was chief of staff of the Lithuanian army. Therefore, it was natural that Andy, as an American citizen, would go to West Point. After West Point, he became a Green Beret and went to Afghanistan to help the Afghans fight the communists. As long as I knew about ten years, Andy always called communism the death machine. He dedicated his life to the destruction of the communist empire, which ruled his first homeland, and for which he had an abiding hatred. Lithuania was taken over by the Soviet Union in 1940. While the eyes of the world were riveted on the tragic drama of the fall of France in that year and the heroic defiance of Great Britain, indeed on the very day the Germans took Paris, Stalin issued ultimata to Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. They must all form a new government, which Stalin said would be able to fulfill more completely their obligations under the mutual assistance pacts of, of the preceding autumn. They must all admit large additional Red Army contingents into their countries. Totally isolated and helpless, all three Baltic states agreed. President Anastasia Smetona of Lithuania fled to the United States. The three Baltic countries all came under the rule of Soviet satraps. Popular front governments were formed, with all their cabinet ministers handpicked by the Soviet representative. The national legislatures were dissolved, and elections were called for new legislative bodies for which the candidates were picked by a Soviet-controlled electoral commission. 
which selected only one for each seat. All other organizations except those controlled by the communists were prohibited, leaving the Communist Party the only legal political party. Catholic schools and hospitals were closed. No publication was allowed to appear without prior government approval. The new legislatures met and asked for incorporation into the Soviet Union. The Supreme Soviet of the USSR accepted the request of the three countries and the communist regimes ruled by the general secretary of the party, who was Stalin, were promptly set up in them. The whole process took less than two months. The work of the Catholic Church was restricted more and more tightly. Seminaries were closed. Priests were harassed, even when they did nothing outside of church buildings. Catholic marriage ceremonies were prohibited. Religious holidays were abolished. At the end of the year, the church was denied legal existence in all three countries. For Joseph Stalin hated the Catholic Church and anything to do with Jesus Christ. In June 1941, deportations from the Baltic states began. More than 34,000 in four days were taken from Lithuania. In addition to those deported, 1,355 were killed at this time, including 109 women, uh, 25 school children, and four children under the age of six. 450 of these victims were killed in the jail at the Lithuanian capital at Kaunas by beating in their heads with hammers, being beating in their heads with hammers. Many of them, their bodies racked by torture before their death, were buried in their chains. This burial ground was later found, and there are photographs showing its contents. After World War II, Lithuania produced the world's first freedom fighters. Long before President Reagan had become, became their champion, became the champion of freedom fighters. Uh, the people of Lithuania, Latvia, and Western Ukraine, which had been part of Poland, sent tens of thousands of their young men to make a guerrilla resistance to the communists in the forests of northeastern Europe. They were known as the Forest Brothers. Some of their women fought with the men. A Lithuanian girl in Auschwitz died at the trigger of a machine gun when all the men of its crew were killed in the Battle of Kalnishikai in 1946. The free world ignored the Forest Brothers to its cost. In Lithuania, they numbered up to 100,000. Many were inspired by their Catholic faith. Stalin removed every Lithuanian bishop from his diocese but one. <clears throat> Archbishop Theophilus Matulionis was their Catholic leader. He had been a priest in Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution and was imprisoned in Russia with the first Catholics and Orthodox martyrs just before Lenin died. So he knew exactly the kind of enemy he faced, as did all his countrymen, and Andy Ivor's grandfather and parents, and Andy himself. Archbishop Matulionis spent 13 years in Stalin's jails, where he was secretly consecrated bishop. Ordered by the Soviet Communist government, which Stalin had imposed on Lithuania, to condemn the freedom fighters, he refused, <coughs> saying, quote, since it was not the church, which created the conditions for the emergence of armed groups, it cannot accept responsibility for the consequences of their liquidation, end quote. On December 18, 1946, Archbishop Matulionis was arrested and sentenced to seven years in prison, which he served in labor camps in Siberia and survived. In the camps, he met Archbishop Rhinus of Vilnius and the former prime minister of Free Lithuania. 
In the camps also, as we have seen, was the former president of Estonia. From 1946 to 1958, one-third of all the priests in Lithuania were deported to labor camps in Russia and Siberia. One of them would been sentenced to 25 years, which meant death, since virtually no one survived more than 10 years in the labor camps, was offered his freedom, one of the largest churches in Vilnius, and 100,000 rubles if he would head a schismatic Lithuanian church. He refused and disappears. We do not even know his name. Such was the rock-solid faith of Catholic Lithuania and the Catholic heritage of Antioch. On September 24, 1947, the Lithuanian resistance, knowing they were fighting far more than their own battle, sought to warn the then heedless West. This was before the start of the Cold War and before the Berlin blockade in by several years, to warn them of the character and the horror of the enemy that was advancing upon them. In Krakow, Poland, home of Pope John Paul the Great, there is the legend of a trumpeter, who warned the city of the approach of the Mongol conquerors, who died from a Mongol arrow in his throat before he could finish his trumpet call. Commemorating this legend, in Krakow they still sound an interrupted trump trumpet call every day. I heard it myself when I was there. Catholic Lithuania on the east of Europe now sounded the new trumpet call against our modern Mongols. They wrote a forgotten letter to the Pope, who was Pius XII saying, quote, 200 million multinational people of the Soviet Union, including ourselves, are made to work night and day in manufacturing weapons to enslave the world. Bolshevism is ready to destroy the world's culture and Christianity. Let us not deceive ourselves. Bolshevism is stronger than many of us think. The possession of atomic power is lulling the world to the world to sleep. Bolshevism will soon have weapons of the same potency, end quote. But the free nations of the West would not help the Lithuanian freedom fighters, and Lithuania was forcibly incorporated into the communist empire. By the 1990s, that empire had grown to encompass one-third of the world. <clears throat> and those of you who are young don't remember it, keep in mind how many people that is, one-third of the human race, and they were ruled by communists when I was younger. It was the largest empire in history, greater even than the empire of Genghis Khan and his Mongols. It has split the continent of Europe. It's fortified the borders of the West, which no man could cross, but at the risk of his life, was what the great Winston Churchill was the first to call the Iron Curtain. In the city of Berlin, the Iron Curtain became the Berlin Wall. The communist soldiers had orders to shoot to kill anyone trying to cross the wall. Circling around to Asia, the Communist Empire was in the 1980s trying to seize Afghanistan. The Iron Curtain ran all the way to the 38th parallel in Korea, where the Korean War of the 1950s had ground to a halt. Stalin's choice for a dictator of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, ruled it as his proconsul for no less than 48 years. The nations ruled by that empire were the captive nations whose liberation the free West long hesitated to call for. But then came two extraordinary men, history makers, who dared to call for it. One of them was President Ronald Reagan, who had fought communism all his life. The other was a new pope, the first non-Italian pope in centuries, who came from Poland, 
ruled by the communist empire, where lived the church of the martyrs, where this pope, whom we now know as John Paul the Great, had served as bishop. <clears throat> so naturally, after his elevation to the papacy, the new pope visited Poland, his homeland. The whole country rejoiced. I visited Poland that same year, 1981, and several towns, his picture adorned every light pole. General Wojciech Jaruzelski, the communist prime minister of Poland, who had stood by unmoving as the Nazis assaulted and killed the Polish volunteer army in Warsaw, welcomed John Paul II and greeted him on a public platform. Jaruzelski represented and incarnated one of the last communist governments. The Pope stood on the platform, his handsome face solemn. He was the vicar of Christ, come to seek the obedience of his Polish people. Jaruzelski stood before him, refusing that obedience. It was a foreshadowing of his judgment. The probing eye of the television camera fixed on Jaruzelski's rigid form as he stood at the tension before the Pope on the platform. Jaruzelski was mortally terrified. You could see that he knew that he was anathema to the king of kings. As our Christian ancestors used to say, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jaruzelski was leaving this ancient adage. His knees were knocking together as though he were, on a, as though he were a wooden doll. Half a world away, I saw this myself on television. It was the beginning of the end for communism in Poland. All over the communist empire, as the accursed 20th century ended, the people were striking for their freedom. Poland, inspired by the native son the Pope, formed the first free labor union in the history of the communist empire, Solidarity, which the Pope celebrated and glorified. Lech Wałęsa, the leader of Solidarity, was a passing Catholic who brought, brought freedom for the Catholic Church back to Poland, and the Pope had a special audience for him. Eventually, Solidarity brought elections to Poland, the first free elections in any communist country, in which the communists were massively repudiated. Voters were allowed to cross out the names of public officials they did not want, and every single communist office holder was crossed out. The first free government in the communist world was established under the Catholic leader Tedros Matsovieki as Prime Minister. Hungary remembered and honored its dead, its dead freedom fighters of the year 1956, the rising against communism in 56, and found a new leader, Imre Pazge, who renounced the whole communist system of government, the one-party system. In Romania, the two communist dictators, Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu, were shot on Christmas Day, 1989. In Czechoslovakia, a great demonstration organized by playwright Václav Havel and his anti-communist group called Charter 77 made what was called the Velvet Revolution. They filled Wenceslas Square in Prague with demonstrators and demanded and obtained the resignation of the entire communist government in 1989. Meanwhile, the artificial communist state of East Germany in the artificial communist state of East Germany, thousands have been gathering every Sunday for weeks at St. Nicholas Catholic Church in Leipzig. So, so once again, the Catholic Church was the center of a rising against communism. When East German communist leader Erich Honecker refused to renounce the use of force against the Sunday demonstrators in Leipzig, he was forced to resign on, in October 1989.
The hated Berlin Wall came down soon afterward with scenes of enormous jubilation. After that, though almost all the experts had said it could never happen, East and West Germany peacefully reunited. Almost all the communist states in Eastern Europe were going bankrupt because they could not pay the interest on the enormous loans Western banks had foolishly given them. Finally, in Bulgaria, which had been the tamest Soviet satellite of all and had plotted to assassinate the Pope in 1981, a plot which almost succeeded and would have succeeded if a heroic little Italian nun named Sister Letizia had not grabbed the Turkish assassin's gun arm at the moment he was shooting. Foreign Minister Peter Mladenov made a public attack on the communist regime in October 1989, after which the communist leader Toto Zhivkov of Bulgaria had to resign, and Mladenov took his place. So the Russian rule of the communist empire, country by country, came apart, and Mikhail Gorbachev, then ruling the Soviet Union, refused to take military action to stop it. He no longer wanted an empire, just as he was no longer wanted to spread revolution throughout the world, which was the purpose for which Lenin, enemy of God and man, had created the Soviet Union. In the same pivotal year, 1989, the last communist state, China, showed, uh, which of course is still communist, showed the world how much it owed to Gorbachev's restraint. In the Chinese capital of Beijing, over 100,000 students and workers, mostly young people, occupied Tiananmen Square on the 70th anniversary of the famous student demonstrations of 1919, widely credited with having brought China into the modern world. The then ruler of communist China, Deng Xiaoping, would be on the long march with Mao Zedong, sending troops to drown the revolution in blood. Tanks and machine guns fired on the demonstrators. Tear gas filled the square and the streets. It was May 1989. Gorbachev came to visit, urged Deng to stop shooting, but he would not. If Gorbachev had not refused to invade the communist capitals, there would have been similar scenes in all of them. Was the reason that this man, as a baby, had been sealed with Christ's baptism by the intervention of his grandmother? I think it was. As much as the end of the communist empire itself, it was a deliverance. Now back to Andy Iva and the liberation of Lithuania. When Andy was in Afghanistan, he saw how much their Muslim faith meant to the Afghans. Andy had drifted away from the Catholic faith in which he had been brought up, but he rediscovered it in Afghanistan the most unusual conversion or reconversion story I have ever heard. So Andy became a Catholic champion, every bit as much as the man I once worked for, Congressman John Schmitz, my godfather. John Schmitz died four years ago, and I do not know whether Andy is alive or dead. But when Andy does die, I like to think of these two great men meeting in heaven and exchanging reminiscences. For John Schmitz also devoted his life to the fight against communism though we did not live to see its final defeat. And he did, and helped to bring it about. During the last days of the communist empire, I worked closely with Andy Iva. I was writing and publishing a monthly newsletter on the armed resistance to communism, called the Freedom Fighter. As a Green Beret and a West Point graduate, Andy was able to advise and counsel the Freedom Fighters all over the world. Our government neither knew or apparently cared what he was doing. He was not on active duty, but was doing all this on his own. His Washington apartment, which I often visited, was strewn with clothes and scraps of food. 
My brother-in-law, Pete Westoff, gave him his old bicycle to get around in since Andy could not afford a car. Andy had almost no money except the little he could raise by mail appeals on behalf of the Afghans. But he never rested in his crusade to bring down the communist empire, and he saw it fall, helped to destroy it himself. In 1990, some 85,000 Soviet troops were stationed in Lithuania, but many had been there for a long time and developed a considerable rapport with the Lithuanian people among whom they resided. Stimulated by the example of Eastern Europe in general and neighboring Poland in particular, Lithuanian popular demand for independence it escalated rapidly during 1989. On January 11, 1990, a quarter of a million Lithuanians rallied for independence in the broad open space around St. Casimir's Cathedral in their capital of Vilnius. A few hours later, Gorbachev arrived to try to persuade them that independence would not be their advantage. He meant total rejection. Seeking some concession short of independence that he could offer and aware that the preceding month uh, Lithuania had become the first Soviet republic to change its constitution to permit more than one political party, Gorbachev now said, quote, I don't see a tragedy in the multi-party system if it serves the people, end quote. Thus Gorbachev abandoned the cornerstone of the Lenin's political system, the one-party state. But this concession was not enough for the Lithu Lithuanians. On March 11th, Lithuania formally declared its independence of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev declared the Lithuanian Declaration null and void. But the Lithuanians, led by their improbable president, tousle-haired music teacher Vytautis Landsbergis, would not abandon it. Gorbachev attempted to impose economic sanctions on Lithuania, especially an embargo on oil and gasoline, but the city councils of Moscow and Leningrad openly defied the sanctions. As the year 1991 began, Gorbachev was losing patience with Lithuania. Meeting with the Lithuanian Prime Minister Kazimir Prunskiany in Moscow, January 8th, Gorbachev told her, go back home and restore order, otherwise I'll have to do myself. She asked him if she could assure her countrymen that he would not use force against them. Gorbachev refused to pledge avoidance of force. On January 8th in Vilnius, there was a demonstration at the big new parliament building, organized by the pro-Soviets among the Russian population of Lithuania. About 30 demonstrators penetrated the building, but were met by 15 members of the Lithuanian national karate team who flew them out. About 100 Soviet armored vehicles entered Vilnius that day. At 11 that evening, a plane landed in Vilnius airport containing about 50 members of the elite alpha group of the Soviet special forces comparable to our Green Berets. About 50,000 Lithuanians now stood guard at the parliament building, protesting it with their bodies alone, since none of them were armed. Others inside had a few weapons, pathetically inadequate for the, for the task. On the morning of January 11th, an inventory of their arms showed five shotguns, three 22 caliber single-shot bolt, single bolt-action rifles, and one rusty pistol. On January 10th, Gorbachev sent a harsh message to the Lithuanian government and the next morning announced the formation of a National Salvation Committee in Lithuania to restore order there. 
Soviet tanks appeared at the, at the building which housed the Lithuanian defense headquarters, and 60 Soviet paratroopers attacked it. The Lithuanians' guardian were unarmed, but they had made a few Molotov cocktails. One was flung at the advancing troops, who then cleared the building with machine guns. Half a mile away, Soviet paratroopers attacked the Vilnius press building. Its defenders had only a fire hose for resistance. They used it with vigor. The host wielder was shot and wounded, and the paratroops occupied the building. At 30 minutes past midnight, January 13th, Soviet tanks and paratroops attacked the Vilnius City Television Tower, thereby striking at Lithuanian President Landsberg's only way to communicate with his people. About 500 unarmed defenders had been on guard there. Hearing the Soviet tanks were coming, the television announcers broadcast an appeal for help. From all over Vilnius, cars raced for the television tower, doubling the number of defenders before the Soviet vehicles arrived. Pro-Soviet demonstrators were supposed to arrive and start a fight so that the troops could then claim to be, which the troops could then claim to be intervening to stop. But those demonstrators were nowhere to be seen. Someone coordinating the operation had forgotten that the Soviet troops were operating on Moscow time, while the demonstrators were on Lithuanian time, two hours different. <laughs> Even without the excuse of restoring order, the tanks rolled forward. A young woman named Lorena Asanovinciute stood in front of one of the tanks, which rolled over until only her high-heeled shoes could be seen under the treads. I've seen a photograph there. She lived about four hours long, enough to make a dying statement in the hospital. The television announcer reported the progress of the attack minute by minute with the sounds of smashing, beating, and shooting in the background. The broadcast was heard throughout Vilnius and over much of the country. Thirteen Lithuanians were killed and hundreds wounded, many with crushed legs and battered faces. The defenders of the parliament building heard it all and were sure they would be next. About 5,000 Soviet troops were available for action in Vilnius. There were 50,000 Lithuanian defenders of the parliament building, but they still had very few weapons and none that could threaten tanks. Mass was set in front of the building for the defenders, who sang Lithuanian Catholic hymns. The only trained officer on the scene was Andy Ivor. The KGB had arrested Ivor early that morning, then released him without explanation. Andy had followed the liberation of Lithuania with the greatest care. One of my most cherished memories of a lifetime is when after Lithuania declared its independence and the Soviet army moved to try to crush it and the news media described the confrontation at the Lithuanian parliament building in their capital of Vilnius, which the unarmed people had flocked to protect I called Andy to ask him what he knew about it. My newsletter, The Freedom Fighter, reported on armed resistance to communism, and he was my best source because he followed and advised anti-communist armed resistance groups all over the world, from Lithuania to Africa and Afghanistan. What did he know about the confrontation of Vilnius? Andy told me in the telephone, I can still hear him saying it, saying it, I was there and I was in command. Defense of the apartment building in Vilnius was critical to bringing about the end of the communist empire, which meant his objective all his life. I was privileged to see him actually attain that objective.
and he could speak Lithuanian, which he learned from his parents as a child, so could communicate with the defenders of the apartment building. They knew he was there and one of them, a man named Vidas Milvidas, a hero of the doomed Lithuanian resistance to Stalin in the early 1940s, which had warned the Pope of the deadly danger of advancing communism, was also there. When asked to take command of the defenders, Milvidas deferred to Andy, whose Green Beret training fitted him for the task and the responsibility. Andy immediately placed Molotov cocktails on the approach to the Parliament building, and as he told me, they would have incinerated any attackers as they came. When I asked him if the Soviets could have gotten into the building, he said yes, but they wouldn't have gotten out again. <laughs> Milvidas brought up and posted the men who had weapons, assigning them fields of fire. He selected officers for each post. He and Iva prayed the Our Father with them before they took their stations. Iva directed the making of Molotov cocktails, made easy because after the gasoline shortage of the previous year due to the Soviet embargo on gasoline shipments to Lithuania, most Lithuanians routinely carried five-gallon gasoline containers in their cars. These homemade gasoline bombs, whose effectiveness against tanks had been proved in the winter war in Finland when Carl Gustav Mannheim, subject of an earlier lecture of mine here, and the Finns defeated the much more powerful and numerous Soviet army against odds of 41, were mostly deposited on the second floor of the Parliament building. There were now 70,000 Lithuanians around the Parliament building, but the Soviet tanks had arrived and were circling the blocks around it, training their guns on the people, surging toward them, and then backing off as the defenders shouted, Lithuania will be free! Iva spoke to the crowd, telling them that their presence in such numbers was already a great moral victory for communism. There were three Lithuanian soldiers armed with rifles at the headquarters location, which were opposed to resistance. Iva, believing them to be KGB agents, disarmed them in succession single-handed using a technique he had learned at West Point. Few men would be brave enough to do that, though my godfather John Schmitz, the bravest man I ever knew except for Andy, once disarmed a knife-wielding robber with his bare hands. All the afternoon and the evening, the radios of the Russian troop commander around the parliament building crackled with angry messages urging that they be allowed to attack when their men were while their men were still ready and willing. But no orders came, and the officers began cursing over their radios. Around the parliament building, the defenders were singing Lithuanian's great Marian hymn, Maria, Maria. The music of the hymn and the name of the Mother of God mingled with the Russian curses on the radio. Another Soviet battalion arrived, but the Soviet troops were no longer in attack position. On January 16th, at least a quarter of a million people followed a cortege of the bodies of nine of the victims of the Soviet assault on television station. Catholic Archbishop Staponovich said, Now our independence is baptized in the blood of martyrs. In Moscow, Russian Orthodox Patriarch Alexei, finally breaking him away from the subservience of the Russian, troop, Russian church, to the communist government declared the quote the use of military force in Lithuania is a great political mistake in the language of the church it is a sin end quote the Soviets blinked 
On January 20th, Soviet Interior Minister Pugo announced that the troops would be withdrawn from Lithuania. This amounted to a recognition of their independence, of Lithuanian independence. Though the last Russian troops were not withdrawn several years later, no other major effort was ever made to restore Soviet power over Lithuania. <clears throat> Sometimes, standing at a turning point in history, one man takes history into his hands and changes everything. Men make history. And on that day in Vilnius at the Parliament Building, January 8, 1991, Andy Iva made history. I was privileged to record it in my history of communism, citing as my source an interview with Andy on July 28, 1995. Nineteen years ago, Andy spoke right here because he took a great interest in Christendom College. Some of our graduates helped him out, worked with him. Mrs. Iskanik remembers him, and Dr. Rice remembers him. All this is in recent living memory. Later, when I visited Lithuania in 1994 after redemption, the spot where Andy had changed history was commemorated by a crude mural of the Sun of Freedom bursting from the jaws of a crocodile, symbolizing the Soviet secret police. And the headquarters of the secret police were kept just as they had been, even to the bullet holes and the bloodstains on the walls, to tell Western tourists and Lithuanians alike just how evil the enemy had been. It was called the KGB Museum, and I trust it is still there for those who do not remember it. The people of the Communist Empire knew that they were about to fight in a truly holy cause. There was a camaraderie among them as they prepared to engage in it. They knew their enemy and were resolved to crush him once and for all. I chronicled their struggle in the freedom fighter and came to know their spokesman. As I have said, I brought together what we call the Nike Group of Americans to aim at total victory over communism. It included Andy Iver and an assortment of unique personalities whose dedication matched him, his. One was Margaret Calhoun, a southern belle known to her friends as Ducky, who had made herself an expert on movements to fight communism in Africa, especially in Angola and Mozambique. Another was Herbert Romstein, who had been a communist once like Whitaker Chambers and had become a world authority on the communist revolution. Another was Carl Linden, a tall, slender man who had been an analyst of communist propaganda with me in the Central Intelligence Agency. We met in apartments and stayed up late. We never forgot, in the immortal words of General Douglas MacArthur, there is no substitute for victory. Above all, we always knew there were thousands more who shared our commitment and would not rest until communism was destroyed. The people of Lithuania, which declared its independence in 1990, remembered that they were Catholics. They marched to their capital, Vilnius, and its parliament building in January 1991, singing the Lithuanian hymn, Maria, Maria. When they regained their country, despite their desperate poverty, their first care was to cleanse their churches, which the communists had gutted. Now the churches are as good as new. You would never know the destroyers and the Christ-haters had been there. On a hill in Lithuania called Sialei, at the time of the Catholic conversion to Lithuania in the 14th century, three wooden crosses had stood. They were still there in 1940 when Stalin took over Lithuania. Stalin cut them down and buried them. No act of his is more revealing of his character and purpose. Why did he care about them? Never forget in remembering Stalin, 
that he was a former Orthodox seminarian who had become Christ's sworn enemy. Now the three buried crosses were dug up by the Catholic Lithuanians and replaced by three crosses in stainless steel, 40 feet high. Those crosses stand on the hill of Sialiata today. Pope John Paul the Great prayed before them. Orthodox Bishop Chrysostom of Vilnius joined the defenders of the Parliament building in January 1991, saying that the Soviet troops would occupy the capital of Lithuania only over his dead body. Today, Lithuania is both free and Catholic again, thanks be to God and to Andy Iva. The Lithuanians gave the cross another mighty triumph, another resurrection. For Christians are a resurrection people. Their God is always dying and rising. No Lenin, no Stalin, no other evil force can keep him underground. And the sun of freedom bursting from the jaws of the crocodile in Vilnius is Andrew Ives' monument, symbolizing what Christ did on the first Easter. Please remember and tell your children what Andy Iver did in Vilnius that January day in 1991. He's not mentioned in any histories except mine. You may never meet another man who knew him. He liberated this country from the worst tyranny in history, the communist death machine. He defeated the malevolent ghost of Joseph Stalin, the antichrist of our time. He helped lift the shadow of communism from all of us. At the critical moment, in the decisive place, he was in command. He helped to bring down the communist empire, which enslaved the homeland of his parents. He was a soldier of Christ, engaging in battle against the devil whom he defeated in Christ's holy name. I saw I helped him do it. I am proud to have known him and welcome this opportunity to make him known to you. His story is too good to forget.